This is Founder Forward, the podcast from NEA, where we explore the company building journey with candid commentary from founders and investors, some legendary, some just getting started, all moving forward. I'm Kate Barrett. On this episode of Founder Forward, I spoke to Mandela Patrick, co-founder and CEO of Optimatic, which leverages data-driven insights to create and optimize creatives for brands using generative AI. Mandela talked about why starting a company felt like a natural evolution for this first-time founder, what it's like to build something new in a very hot space, and why tapping into your own trusted network has never been more important. I'm Dr. Mandela Patrick, originally from the beautiful Caribbean island of Trinidad and Tobago. And I'm currently the CEO and co-founder of Optimatic. And we're a creative AI company that's pushing the boundaries of image and video generation to help brands reach their audience faster, cheaper, and in more effective ways. And on every episode of Founder Forward, we like to fast forward to get some insights from a founder and investor who are walking this road together. Today, we'll hear from Dion Nicholas, co-founder and CEO of Forethought, the leading generative AI for customer support, and NEA partner, Vanessa Larco. Dion and Vanessa talked about the exploding mainstream adoption of generative AI, how to find investors who will truly have your back, and why knowing your weaknesses as a founder is just as important as leaning into your strengths. I'm Vanessa Larco. I'm a partner at NEA, focused on early stage investing across enterprise applications and consumer apps. I've been at NEA for six years, and prior to NEA, I was in product management across gaming and other consumer companies to dev tools and other enterprise SaaS apps. I'm Dion Nicholas, the CEO and co-founder of Forethought. We are the generative AI for customer support automation. Uh, we were launched in 2018, and uh, I've been working with Vanessa and the NEA team pretty much since then, so very excited to be here. With AI being the topic on everyone's mind, we wanted to hear from two founders who know firsthand what it's like to build a business amidst this whirlwind of both hype and opportunity. Let's dive in. Mandela, you have a fascinating background. I'd love to just hear a little bit about, about your journey so far prior to founding a company and maybe some thoughts on on where you started to develop those entrepreneurial muscles. Yeah. So um, when I started like looking back and thinking back, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. Even though I came from a middle-class family, my parents taught me to always be very conservative with money. And so even though I was a big tech nerd, wanted to play with the latest gadgets, the latest games, I had to get that money myself. And so to do that, I started uh, this company called MNOP Technologies when I was in primary school into high school. And I would do a bunch of these different services for like my friends and classmates to make money on the side. But what drew me particularly to tech entrepreneurship was this TV show called uh, Jimmy Neutron. It's, it's this, I uh, remember it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Massive head, sort of ice cream shaped here. But I remember a particular episode where he made a computer game for his friend. And I found that super cool. Like the games that I was playing on my PS2, I was like, I want to make those games myself. And so I, 
I begged my dad to get this book called Game Programming for Teens. And that was like my first introduction to programming when I was about 10, 11 years old. I ended up taking a level equivalent, which in, I think in the US terms would be like AP classes, um, ended up topping the Caribbean in math and computer science. And that brought me to Harvard um, University where I did a, a computer science degree. And in that experience, got really interested into sort of AI machine learning and wanted to sort of pursue this even deeper. I uh, was fortunate enough to intern at Instagram in the sort of like machine learning recommendations team and then sort of applied for the Rhodes Scholarship my senior year, which took me to Oxford where I did a, a PhD in the, in the VGG computer vision group. My experience of AI was that I love research, but I also love putting this cutting edge research in people's hands. So I was astonished when you're telling your story. I'm like, gosh, there's a lot of parallels between Mandela and Dion here <laughs> in terms of not just like you're solving problems and doing very practical things that sort of set you down this entrepreneurial path, but but like both of you really delved into AI before you even really knew what it was and why you were doing that. What made you jump into the world of entrepreneurship I know how you landed at the product, but not what made you leap into entrepreneurship to begin with. <laughs> what is that story? It's interesting. It's kind of long and winding, uh, to be honest. Um, so background, I grew up in inner city Toronto to, you know, immigrant parents from the Caribbean. We didn't have much, but I luckily, uh, I would say, learned to code when I was younger. Um, one of my older brother's friends taught me how to code and it was like, this like superpower that I've held <laughs> since then. And I would kind of always be building things. Anytime I came across a problem or an idea or a story, originally it was around video games. But as I, as I got older, it became around problem solving for me. So I think the first um, entrepreneurial product idea I ever had actually was in was in high school, I had this like grand idea to build something that could like read my notes read textbooks and all this stuff and 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 help me study. And that was like, I mean, back then it probably wasn't even called AI. It was all rules-based and stuff. But like that was how I got into natural language understanding. But it was also like one of those first project ideas I ever had. Um, I went to University of Waterloo, uh, interned and worked out in the Bay Area at places like Facebook uh, and Palantir. Eventually uh, graduated, worked at Pure Storage. But throughout that period, kind of that that little entrepreneurial bug, so to speak, never really left me. And again, I didn't realize it was like entrepreneurship, but I kept kind of coming back to, for me, this idea of using AI, using technology to help people get their questions answered. And it was something that was spurred for me in school. But, um, you know, I started thinking about areas in the enterprise like customer support um, and like other applications. And, and quite frankly, like, once you really get that bug, it never goes away. Um, and so at some point I made the leap. I left uh, Pure Storage at the time, started Forethought. They're actually now a Forethought customer, which is kind of cool. But that's, that was like the entrepreneurial itch for me. Mandela, I'm curious, what's your reaction to that? And kind of why do you think you were drawn to that space in particular? So early on, and then I want to veer from there into why did you end up founding a company in the creative space? Hearing his clip sort of took me back to a particular project I did during the pandemic, actually. We built this thing called the People's Gala. I've always been interested in how 
AI and in technology more broadly could democratize access. And this People's Gather project was actually a consumer generative AI even before it was a thing. We did this thing where I was frustrated that I could have never gone to the Met Gala. And so I was like, how, how can I go to the Met Gala without being there? And so we built this kind of project where you could put your face on any celebrity and be at the Met Gala. And it was this really fun generative AI project two or three years ago before the generative AI had its moment. And part of what drew me to this company and why I'm building this company, Optimatic, is that I've always wanted to be creative but that's not been something that's been natural to me. Um, And with sort of generative AI, we're seeing this whole new renaissance moment around AI empowering people to be more creative, to be more um, fluent visually. You know, it's fascinating about that. Like the first waves of machine learning and AI and things like that, it was making it easier to do tech, making allowing non-technical people or people who weren't developers to be able to create apps, to do things like that. Now, what's so fascinating is it's, all of that other stuff, the creative space, the ability to generate content and art. And it seemed to happen almost overnight. I know that's not really how it unfolded. How did you see that opportunity back then and sort of get in front of it that way? Yeah, it's, it's so crazy. Back then, I wasn't really thinking, probably similar to Dion, wasn't thinking it of as like AI or generative AI. I, I was just thinking about it as how can we use some of these technologies to impact and increase access, if we actually democratize access to it and put it into people's hands, the pace of creativity and, and expression would just like be exponential. What actually drew me to sort of building in this creative AI space is that even some of these new generative AI tools, it still feels inaccessible to me. Like I feel like I need to be this PhD in like literature to prompt these models correctly to get the outputs that I want. And parts of, I think what we're trying to do is how do you use data and recommendations to sort of help you prompt these systems better? And so, yeah, I think I've always just been in the space of how do we use technology and AI to democratize access? And I think a big part of that is just like lowering the barrier to entry. And that's been part of like my story and my journey since I could remember. I was going to say, you may be a first-time founder, but I think you've been training for this particular marathon for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> I want to play a quick clip from Deanna Vanessa's conversation that gets a little bit into that idea of technology being obsolete as soon as it happens and sort of the journey that Forethought has gone through over the last 6, 12 months, and then kind of talk about your response to that and how it affects your approach to company building. You had this idea, right, of LLM-like functionality, right, where this thing, your software could write and respond to some of these things, and it could mine knowledge bases, formally and informally, right, to figure out what would be the right answer to a customer. Um, So you'd been in it for years, and then OpenAI drops their GPT-3 and then slashes the prices to make it super cheap. And you've been working and building a lot of this stuff, in-house like what's that (laughs) moment like what was that fork in the road for you what did that look like oh that's been fun to say the least so um (laughs) yeah so just taking us back to 2017 and before our kind of you know earned secret in this market i would say has always been to take like a a general ai based approach to customer support and focus it on your data 
use the data, use AI that can understand it to build better systems on top and build better applications on top. And so we have been building for years, which is fun. And then November 2022, ChatGPT drops. And the TLDRs, I think we went through like five stages of, of grief or something like that, <laughs> right? Like at first we were super dismissive. We're like, you know what? Everything we built is so much better. Don't even worry about open AI. Like it doesn't matter. We'll just keep doing our thing. And then I think like, you know, three minutes later, it was like panic of like, oh crap, like does everything we've built suck now? <laughs> it was just, you know, everyone's like freaking out for like a good few minutes. And then you go through like all of that and then eventually you come out with like acceptance. And for us, the acceptance was super focusing in, in so many ways because there were so many pros of what OpenAI launched with GPT-3 and a half um, and ChatGPT. It led to this entire wave where in the past, we've been beating down customers' door and telling them, guys, you need this AI in your customer support. And they're like, yeah, okay. To like, now customers were beating down our door and like saying, guys, we need generative AI for our customer support, <laughs> right? And so it became this really big shift where demand went, went through the roof and it became this arms race of like, hey, who is going to have AI first? And first it was in marketing, but then very quickly everyone asked the question, how can I apply this to customer support? But then also because we already had a lot of this stack built in, it was easy for us to swap out the 20 or so percent, 20 to 30 percent of our of our stack that was actually obsolete because of GPT 3.5. And that was where the acceptance had to come from. It's like, hey, by truly looking ourselves in the mirror and, and answering that question, we ended up integrating with OpenAI in some cases, we launched Support GPT, which is the you know world's first generative AI for customer support automation. And then we were able to make our customers the heroes. So folks like Upwork, who have been with us for a couple of years, when they launched Support GPT, which was basically a minor change to the engine, but a big change to the experience, they were now the first probably businesses in the world to be applying generative AI in this form, this modern form, to their customer support. And so that was really exciting. Mandela, I'm curious, what is your response to that being definitely in the earlier stages of company building than forethought, but probably really experiencing a lot of the similar dynamics? Is it noisy? Is it hypey? Or is it an advantage? Everything that's been kind of bubbling up around generative AI. A lot of the work I did in my PhD was based on this concept called contrastive learning. It's how a lot of these AI models are trained. And it's very simple. So you you have one sample, you compare it to another data sample, and these two samples are usually like kind of similar. And then you compare it to a set of like noise samples. With that approach, it's easier for these models to compare versus say just predict off of just one data sample. And I think it's a very, a very similar thing for us, which I'm excited about, is that it's probably easier for us to stand out with noise because it's easier for you to see what's good and what's not. And I think having so much interest in this space for me is pretty exciting because I think if you're able to build differentiated technology, you can sort of like really set your path. And it's going to be a lot quite evident based on the revenue you're generating, the customers you're able to attract, the content you're, you're able to generate. And so I think noise is actually really good for differentiation. How does that 
play into the company building process in terms of, I mean, we'll talk about fundraising for sure, but in terms of hiring. I've been extremely fortunate to have attended some of the the best schools and institutions and I've worked at some of the top companies. So having that network to tap into and sort of having built relationship and credibility into the space, I think makes it a lot easier for me to attract talent. So that's been, I think, a big part of how we've been taught about recruiting is how do we tap into the networks that we've built. The other one is, and has been pretty successful for us, is how do you tap into markets and communities that have been overlooked or isn't as represented? And so we've been able to tap into the international market because this is amazing talent everywhere. I talk about talent is distributed, opportunity is not. So that's, we think about that very strategically from a hiring standpoint. Mandel, I think you're so fortunate that you had a really good network to tap into already in terms of people you could recruit. One of the things that Dion was talking about was that if they post a job right now, they get thousands of applicants right away. So Dion, you know, now that Generative AI has a ton of hype, has recruiting changed? Have you changed how you approach recruiting? What does talent and attracting talent look like these days? In many ways, our recruiting process hasn't changed. What has changed is, again, generative AI hype is really good for us right now, right? And so when we go and we post a new role, we're getting thousands of applicants. And it's actually crazy. Like, we're looking at each other like, wait, what's going on here? Ironically, we should actually be, quote unquote, slower on hiring, like in the sense of, you know, taking the time to weed out, hey, is it just candidates who are here for the ride? And really understanding what people are looking for and And are people truly here for the long-term mission, right? Because this is a 10-year journey uh, if you're successful. And so, yeah, things have definitely changed. So it's it's gone from trying to like source more to trying to um, assess more. That makes a ton of sense. But you also just recruited incredible AI technical talent from the very early days. What was the secret to that? Mostly my co-founder, Sammy. (laughs) So shout out to him. (laughs) You know, he, he graduated top of his class and at Harvard in computer science and was probably the youngest member of uh, the machine learning team at LinkedIn before starting Forthought with me. So, you know, it helps to have a a genius co-founder. And then also one of the kind of hacks we had was, um, so I had come from a competitive programming background and I had built a great network of folks who were hacker problem solver types from that world, but also just great humans, great people. And I still remember our first four engineering hires we made were like two were from from Sammy's network, two were from from my network. And like they're all all four of those OG engineering hires are now, you know, the managers, directors, kind of engineering leaders here at Forthon. So it's so cool to just see that. And so all of that were probably our our, uh, secrets to landing great technical talent. So if any students are listening to this podcast, we would say don't skip class and get really good grades and build a really great relationship with your professors, especially your AI professors. <laughs> and your peers, because those are the ones you're going to either right. hire or work for or work with or co-found a company with. Um, focus on the, the technical stuff, but also just like build serendipitous relationships because sometimes that just matters a ton in the future. Is that something you're thinking about too, Mandela? Yeah, no, in terms of assessment and evaluation, we've been fortunate enough 
to mostly tap into a network. And that's been a lot easier because you have so much priors on who that person is, what they value and what they're looking for. Everyone's trying to work in the AI field right now. And I think particularly if I haven't worked with that person doing that extra mile on references directly from the candidate, but also doing your back channel references to make sure that you're hiring the right people. So Mandel, you would be operating in a very different environment had you started this company, say, two years ago than today for a whole lot of reasons, right? Everything from pandemic to market correction to rising interest rates, you name it. I want to play a short clip from Dion and Vanessa's conversation about this. And then I want to talk about your experience in the environment that we're in today and sort of what that has meant to you in terms of company building. Dion, you've had to navigate as a founder through all kinds of things, right? Like multiple black swan events. You tell me if this is one of the biggest challenges was the shift from you're supposed to run your company in growth at all costs, right? 3X, go as fast as you can. Don't worry about burn. Capital is cheap, right? Interest rates were near zero. So capital is cheap and easy. And then it felt like almost overnight, it flipped on its head. And I feel like that switch in how to operate has been a much more interesting challenge than navigating the COVIDs, the bank runs, the you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the meltdowns, all the things. <laughs> I feel like that that shift in how you build and operate a business, right? Like that's like the foundation. How have you found techniques or how are you thinking about that switch and how have you navigated it? I think you've done an extraordinary job for what it's worth. Thank you. Yeah, it's been one of the the toughest shifts to make because Growth at all costs has been the predominant mindset for all companies for as long as I think Forethought has been around. And so the shift has been a major exercise in one, making hard calls, making hard decisions, but also getting better at discipline and disciplined growth. And I think that's actually the newest part uh, and probably the hardest, but also like the funnest thing to learn is just like, how do you build discipline and consistency into your business as you're growing? I think like recognizing, hey, okay, what do we need to optimize for? We need to make sure that we have runway through X, making sure that we're growing and being really pragmatic about turning those dials, right? So from burn multiple to growth to all those things. So I think that's been super helpful. And then the part, and I think the muscle we're building now, we're still kind of in the thick of it, is definitely like that consistency muscle, like putting in controls, making sure that you don't slightly overspend in one area because then it starts to cascade and everything kind of rolls from there. And then the last thing, obviously, that's been really hard, I think, for every founder in this market is having to make like cut decisions, right? Like things like layoffs and stuff like that. Like it, it definitely hurts from a morale perspective. It hurts from like a leadership, like having to make these decisions when it's people you've hired, people you've potentially worked with for years it's a really, really tough market out there. So being able to make those decisions, be very transparent about them with the the company, with those who are remaining, with those who are leaving, and, and really walking through the why and like why this matters and how we're trying to build a lasting company has been probably the crucial crux of the, the learning curve, I would say, over the last year, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw you in action through all of those steps to take. But I would say one of the things that I was most impressed by that the biggest shift I saw in like mode of operating from you and your team was how focused and how disciplined you all became at prioritization. 
right? Like you had priorities before, but they weren't constrained for like, there was like a lot of priorities, right? <laughs> and yep. as you shifted to, to running the business more efficiently, you were able to really distill down, like what are the absolute must have priorities for us this year? And how does that set us up for next year? But like, we're only going to do these things. And I don't think I've told you this, but I, <laughs> I haven't seen many people that were able to go from like, I can have 15 priorities and everything's fine and these big teams to go run on them to we're going to have these three priorities and everyone's going to be focused on making sure we really deliver on these. And this is why we pick these three and have your whole team articulate it, believe it, drive towards it. And it happens like rather quickly. I don't think I can take a lot of credit uh, for that, but I think a lot of it in many ways was our team. So, so things I can take credit for is like the transparency and the, and the focus from, from the top of like, here's why we need to do these things. Here's what necessity is kind of dictating. But on the flip side, I think a lot of my teammates were able to adapt really quickly. Like we have such a great team who are, you know, selfless, humble, gritty, and that's from the executive team all the way to individual contributors across the company. And everyone really stepped up. I don't feel qualified to say that we have, quote unquote, done it yet. I think we're in the transition. But I think I'm just super impressed with like our team and, and everything that we're kind of learning and pivoting and growing together. And, and that's something that I'm, I'm just like really grateful for. Yeah, I mean, I think um, your team has been so impressive in coalescing around the, we, we like to talk about this, right? The, the hard truths of today um, and not losing hope for, for tomorrow. And I think your team really embodies that. It's also, I think, the culture Sammy and you live and breathe by and, and therefore like the rest of the team does as well. You guys hire people who act like owners. And you can see this in every interaction, right? Every presentation, every conversation, it just comes through that they like are there for the greater good of the company and the customers versus like themselves and their careers or titles or LinkedIn profiles or whatever. It's been amazing to watch you build that team around you as well and that culture in the company. Mandela, you've raised some money now to fund your new business. And I would love to hear what that experience has been like in terms of looking for investors, in terms of getting them to want to be on the cap table, be on the board. What has that been like? Because of the different spaces I've been a part of and relationships I've built along the way, I've been, I was sort of fortunate enough to, to raise the entire round mostly from people in my network. <laughs> that is very fortunate. <laughs> 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 Saved you a lot of hassle right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my advice, I think, for founders is just like your network is your net worth in some sense. And I saw that extremely firsthand in this experience where, as in, I was able to secure like a, a really good funding round, just like being able to tap into my network and sort of these relationships I've built over the last few years. And people think of networking as this very much like sleazy thing. I think at the end of the day, build relationships with people in a very authentic way. And people respond to that, I think. And so I think fundraising is, for me, is less of like this structure, like I want to start now and finish then. It's sort of like, how do I bring in people who have been this like champions of, of me and, and what I've been up to and have them experience this like extremely magical journey along with me as well. And so for me, a big part of even how I chose my investors was, do I trust you? Like I want people around me who, who I trust 100%. And that was a big part of how we ended up picking our main investors as well as our angel investors. I mean, that's they say that it's like getting married or it's pick somebody that you want to be with for a decade or more. 
Mandela, what is most important to you in terms of the qualities of people that you bring with you on that journey? Yeah, one trait that keeps standing out to me are just those folks who are just like, they're just so selfless and humble. They want to help you if you if you want their help. Like one of the best investors um, that we have on our cap table, like we meet with, and then the first question he asks is like, how can I be helpful? And then touching on sort of like the earlier point is, how do you build trust with that person? So with any sort of relationship, like if there is no mutual trust on both sides, like it's never going to be successful. All money is not not good money. And so you got to be extremely um, diligent. Reminds me of a quote from an earlier guest, um, Nikea Greco, who she's founder of 13 Loon, and she said, don't take dumb money. She's like, trust your gut. And you have to have that rapport, that sense of trust, all of that. All right, so Dion, I remember when we met up at your Series A, you were coming into NEA, to the really big room. It was a few months after lunch. So very early for Series A back at that time, which I like to remind you all the time about it. Yeah. But what was that like, coming into a room full of a ton of people? I think the the experience of fundraising in general is just, it's it's pretty daunting. The one thing, though, I will say that I enjoyed, um, I think it was Scott, Scott Sandell. But in general, with the NEA team, the quality of questions was actually disarming in a way. Like, what I mean by that was, like, I could tell that the investing team was actually leaning in, trying to understand, trying to ask great questions and actually digging in on the product and on the vision rather than like trying to trip us up for whatever reason. And so it almost felt like the whole NEA team was like bought in and trying to understand, okay, how far can this thing go? And so that's something I'm super grateful about. It was definitely fun. Yeah. My memories of negotiating the term sheet with you. I learned a lot about negotiation, um, negotiating with you. You have such a great poker face. And I was, I couldn't tell if we had a a good offer, a bad offer, if you were excited or offended. Um, And I was looking for clues into like every word and every like emoji in your text message. Uh, So I was like a ball of nerves (laughs) after we, we gave you the first term sheet. Was that like part of the plan or was that just you being analytical and weighing your options? I remember in hindsight thinking it was a great, great offer. And like our goal wasn't to have the highest valuation or anything like that. In the end, our goal was to like pick great uh, partners. I really appreciated the relationship that we were building over that period of time. Obviously, fundraising rounds go quickly, but you get to see and understand how people think um, and how you're going to work together throughout kind of this this long journey. So speaking of lessons, is there any advice or lessons learned you wish someone had shared with you in the early days of founding the company or, or growing the company? Oh, so many. Uh, where, where, where to start? Uh, probably the first is it's a personal journey being a founder, being a CEO. And what I mean by personal is I mean you need to know and get to know your own strengths and weaknesses, your own, you know, uh, quirks like, hey, I have I happen to have a poker face and don't give feedback well or whatever it is like you, you should actually get to know all of that, because by and large, it is you as a founder, as a CEO, that's going to set the culture it's your strengths and weaknesses that are going to actually blend in and become the strengths and weaknesses of the organization. It's kind of uncanny how that happens. 
And it's those same strengths and weaknesses that you need to hire for or around or to compensate for or to amplify when you think about bringing on people around you as executives or as other teammates. And so just understanding yourself, how you make decisions, what are your superpowers, what are your weaknesses, and the same goes for your co-founders. I think that can never, that can never stop. Like knowing that, whether it means doing executive coaching, therapy, peer groups, whatever that is, finding your path to becoming an excellent CEO is that never-ending journey and recognizing that it is a journey. I am who I am and I'm going to work on my weaknesses, amplify my strengths, and continue to build the team around me that can help turn this into, you know, the next big thing. I think the last thing, and it's been the theme of, I think, a lot of the conversations we've had, which is just like, surround yourself with amazing people that you trust and you want to work with, like from your investors to your legal counsel, to your co-founders and people you hire. Like I'm a big fan of just like the people as in invest in bringing and working with amazing people. And I think at the end of the day, it'll, it'll all be all right. According to Bob Marley, everything's going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're so right, Mandela. It is all about the people and I have loved hearing your story today and getting to know a little bit about Optimatic and so excited to see where you go with that. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Kate. Really appreciate it. Dion, thank you so much for spending the time with us and our listeners to chat through the journey you've been on and the relationship we've built and everything in between. Likewise, Vanessa, it is always a pleasure I am your biggest fan, as you always know that. So I'm um, excited to be on this journey together and hope our, our story helps other founders. So really excited about that. It's always inspiring to hear a founder share their journey. It's inspiring and instructive to hear how those founders adapt when their journey is shaped by circumstances they couldn't have predicted, pushing them to grow faster than they could have imagined. Understanding how to seize opportunity while staying focused and diligent offers a lot to any founder that they can take away and apply in their own journey. I'd like to thank Mandela, Dion, and Vanessa for sharing their stories with us. It's been a pleasure to hear about their journeys and learn from their experiences. Thank you for joining us. Founder Forward is a production from NEA made in partnership with Frequency Media. From NEA, I'm your host and executive producer, Kate Barrett, with support from Ashley Mitchell, Erica Sunken, and Shanna Hendricks. From Frequency Media, Michelle Corey is our executive producer, Ina Garkusha is our supervising producer, Jordan Rizzieri is our producer, and Catherine Devine and Emily Krumberger are our associate producers. Our mixer and sound designer is Claire Bidigari-Curtis, with dialogue editing by Sydney Evans. For more on NEA, visit NEA.com. You can subscribe to Founder Forward on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.